So welcome to another episode of the East Career Cast brought to you by the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma's Career Development Committee. I'm Zaf Kassim, Emergency and Surgical Critical Care Physician at the University of Pennsylvania. And today's career cast is actually going to be about podcasting, uh, in particular medical podcasting and the use of social media as a means to deliver medical education. And certainly there's been a marked increase in the use of this medium over the years, both preceding and now, especially during the pandemic. Uh, several specialties are utilizing this now, and it was inevitable that trauma and surgical critical care specialists would get into this area also. So I have the pleasure today of speaking to two such specialists who have made quite a name for themselves in the social media and medical education podcasting realms. So uh, welcome, and uh, please could you introduce yourselves, tell us where you trained and where you're working right now? You go first, Dennis. Sure. Thanks, Scott. Uh, yeah, thanks so much, Zaf, for uh, having us. This is a real honor. Uh, my name is Dennis Kim, and I host a podcast called Trauma ICU Rounds. Uh, I'm currently an associate professor of clinical surgery at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA and a trauma attending ACS intensivist over at Harbor UCLA Medical Center in South Los Angeles. And it's interesting with CareerCast, I'm actually in the process of transitioning to a new position back up in my home native country of Canada. And I'll be moving up to Vancouver Island to the beautiful city of Victoria uh, this fall to take on the trauma medical director position, ACS and ICU uh, up there. So, so really excited. Oh, wow. That's great. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Scott? Yeah, so I'm an emergency department intensivist. Uh, I only take care of critically ill patients for their first 24 hours. I don't do emergency department. I don't do SICU anymore, though I've had both of those careers in the past. And I guess the reason you have me on this show is I've been doing a podcast on resuscitation and acute critical care for about 12 years now, the MCRIT podcast. And I am a tenured professor. And I mentioned that solely because it's going to become apropos during this conversation as to how I got to that place. And that's the only reason I say it. Otherwise, I never would say that out loud. And uh, that's at Stony Brook in New York. Fantastic. Fantastic. So you mentioned a little bit about uh, the uh, titles of your podcasts and, and blog sites, uh, but can you expand on kind of what the content is of that? What's the uh, audience uh, for that? Uh, Dennis? Oh, sure. So um, again, you know, I've only been in this game for the last year and a bit. And um, over the years, uh, since 2009, I think when Scott first released MCRIT, I've been an avid listener and a big fan of podcasts in general and, and find it such a great medium for learning, especially when you're on the go. And so, you know, when you look at the, the podcast uh, industry, if you will, there's, there's a couple of million of podcasts out there. And when you look at the area of medicine, I really think our EM and ER colleagues have done an absolutely fantastic job being on the front line uh, of medical education, especially when it comes to uh, the podcast medium. And when you look across surgical specialties, uh, especially trauma surgery, obviously there's the East Trauma Cast, which again is something that I've been listening to over the years and really found helpful during my residency training, as well as fellowship and current career. Um, there wasn't that many podcasts out there. And having uh, been involved in medical education, both in the under as well as postgraduate spaces, I really thought it was time for maybe introducing a trauma specific podcast. 
um, that focused on acute care surgery, surgical critical care, which was additive to what's already out there, for example, MCRIT. And so I played with that idea for quite a while. It took a few years, actually, before I finally got up the nerve to kind of put myself out there. And once we did with a lot of planning, preparation, as well as feedback and constructive criticism from colleagues from around the country, we kind of decided it was launch time and we've had a great time ever since. Yeah, you know, before I go into my spiel, I'll just uh, really give kudos to Dennis because uh, there wasn't much in the realm of trauma and critical care out there. You mentioned EastCast, which was fantastic, but your voice is very much akin to the way I hear mine, which is, and that's why I love listening to your podcast, it's the tacit knowledge. It's the, uh, here's how I do it. You know, it's not a formal lecture. It's, I deal with this crap every day. There may be no absolutely perfect evidence-based answer, but I still got to figure out what the hell I got to do with my patients right. here. I'm going to give you my thoughts on it. And that's what MCRIT is as well, is there was yeah. plenty of lectures out there. There were plenty of textbooks, but what there wasn't is that guy tapping you on the shoulder and saying, Hey, jerk, you screwed that one up. Here's what you should have done. And I always appreciated it when my mentors, you know, Tom Scalia would come and say, you messed that one up. Here's what you should have done. That's the best knowledge. You know, you could get the background stuff from textbooks, but you can't get that transmission of experience and all the mistakes made by an experienced practitioner. And that's what I wanted MCRIT to be. So that is one of the major themes of MCRIT is discussing resuscitation and acute critical care from the perspective of hey, we got to figure this stuff out on an everyday basis. Let me talk about it and get feedback from you. That was the key is it's not just me speaking out into the ether. It's <laughs> I want to hear back from the smart people in resuscitation and critical care about that thoughts. So that's one line that is the through line of MCRIT. The other one is discussing things on a true logistical scale. Because most of the time when you hear a national lecture, they'll say, do this. And you're like, okay, great. And then when you try to go back to your home institution and do it, you realize there's like a hundred little things that if you don't have someone teaching you next to you at the bedside cannot be translated into clinical practice. And I wanted to try to bridge that gap with MCRIT. So those are the two main thrusts of the podcast. Yeah, and if I could just jump in, I mean, if you listen to Scott's most recent airway checklist episode, I mean, this is a pragmatic hands-on how to do it in the real world. You know, how do we make sure that we can do QI, process improvement, improve patient outcomes and be safe in the delivery of, of acute care and managing acute airways. And so if you haven't listened to that episode, I mean, you got to listen, because again, this is beyond textbooks. This is how to practice medicine, clinical medicine in the real world. And so there is so much to learn from that. Again, you know, being a trauma surgeon, yes, we're always there for airway management, probably more involved in the ICU, but currently we don't have a, a database in place to track outcomes, the number of attempts, the method of doing it, which again, I love the fact that you kind of push for the video laryngoscopy right up front. Wonderful. So please take a listen. Great example. Thanks, brother. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, some great content coming out of both of your both of your offerings for sure. Uh, so I think that brings us to a nice question. You know, when I'm when I'm asked to give a talk, say it uh, um, at uh, the medical school or for the residents, you know, it's always you know 
this talk is meant for you to be for the medical students or this talk is meant to be for the residents. Is that, uh, you know, how do you decide your audience when you're creating content like this? Should it be narrowly focused for a particular group, say for fellows or residents, or do you wanna reach the broader medical community? Um, and how do you balance that in your uh, content delivery? Okay, uh, I'll take this one first. Thanks, Dennis. So this is such a fantastic point, Zap. And anytime you're giving a lecture, you need to have your ideal target audience. And it really should be broken down to the one person. This is the person who I want to listen to me. And then, you know, you obviously uh, backfill a little bit for the people in different levels of experience, but you have your main target. And the main target for MCRIT for 90% of the episodes is a master resuscitation doctor, whether they be emergency medicine, critical care, trauma surge, it doesn't matter. That's the main focus. And I lose a bunch of the audience on some of these lectures. They're like, this is way too advanced. That's okay. If you're pitching to everyone, you're going to get a low quality product. You have to pitch to one specific group. And then the others will either listen and look up the stuff they don't know or ask someone, or they won't. And they'll just say, this is not at my level. And that's fine. If you're trying to please everyone, you're going to fail. Now, there's about 10% of the content that is more basic. That's meant for people in training uh, or people who have just forgotten their critical care. But I pitch to a very high level. I'm talking to master resuscitation doctors because I want to hear their feedback. That's my target audience. And there's a lot of other people that listen. And I love that they listen, but I am not pitching my content to them. What about you, Dennis? Yeah, for me, I think uh, when I went into this, again, similar to what Scott was saying, I kind of imagined who was my avatar or my ideal listener. And as I mentioned earlier, having been so involved uh, at UCLA with under and postgrad, I think really my, my target audience is that it's the junior health staff, it's the senior medical student who's kind of starting out in their clinical rotations. And just to provide a little bit of a review and some different perspectives in terms of how to manage acute care surgery patients. Again, I think like Scott was saying, you can't satisfy the masses. And so anytime I think of an episode or a specific topic I'm thinking about, I wanna direct it at my target audience or that one single person and make it relevant for them. I appreciate that not everyone is gonna enjoy the content, but as long as 10, 15% of listeners are tuning in and they're getting something out of it, then I'm pretty happy and satisfied with that. Fantastic, fantastic. And so uh, kind of linked into that is um, how do you decide what the right topic is for your next podcast? I mean, is it something that is needs to be very contemporary, keeping up with, say, a new article, or is it uh, another topic uh, that just burning in your mind or something clinical that you've just come across? How do you decide that? Yeah, well, for me, I got a database of like 700 potential topics. And I just, every time there's a new paper or something, I'll just put it in that draft of a post so that it's sitting there. And then I'll look through those. But most of the time, it's just whatever's in front of my mind, whatever's pissing me off because it's not going as well as I want, or I really want to make some process improvement, or I had a bad case and I really dug deep to try to figure out how it could have gone better. So it's really front of mind stuff. Now I'm lucky because I got a partner, you know, about eight years ago, Josh Farkas, who's a pulmonary care intensivist. And just brilliant, dude, just absolutely brilliant. And he covers all the basis. 
in his, he has an internet book of critical care. So I no longer have to worry, oh, there's a real, you know, knowledge gap on MCRIT. I haven't covered X. Once he came on board and started with that project, I'm like, everything will eventually be covered. I don't need to have a single thought on uh, making sure that everything gets hit. He's going to do it. So now I am free to just flit around the stuff that's interesting me. Yeah, the Farkas is great. And I got to put in a plug for IBCC or the Internet Book of Critical Care. Uh, in fact, one of my future partners is the one Adam Thomas, who oh, uh, co-hosts yeah, IBCC. And so it was great. I did a locum up there back in February and uh, to meet Adam and to manage some really complicated patients together was a dream come true. And when it comes to content and topics, um, yeah, you know, when I encounter a particular problem or we have a complication or something doesn't go according to plan, or maybe there wasn't a plan and we should have had a plan in place. Oftentimes I like to use those as a topic of conversation because I'm already reading around these topics. And like I always tell our students and residents, anytime you see an interesting patient or some really weird pathology, read about it then and there in real time, because the next time you come across another patient, you'll remember, oh, I remember Mr. or Mrs. X and Y, and they came in and this was the presentation. This is what we did for them. This is what worked and what didn't work. And so in fact, I use my sort of everyday clinical experience to guide what I'm gonna talk about from episode to episode. And uh, always you wanna plan ahead of time. So we've got episodes and topics and interviews with guests planned through the end of the year. And so you really want to have a lot of a forethought when it comes to planning your content. Great. Do you take uh, requests from our, uh, say, anyone in our audience who's listening today, if they wanted to suggest a topic to you guys, would that be uh, something you'd be entertaining? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think every episode we try to solicit ideas and comments and we want to interact with our audience. So whether that's on the website or via Twitter yeah, we're always open to suggestions. And in fact, many of the episodes that we've released on Trauma IC Rounds have come directly from uh, fans or listeners of the show. Yeah, same here. Send them my way. Awesome. So there are so many uh, different medical podcasts, as you guys mentioned, out there now. And, uh, you know, in, in today's world, really, um, in some ways, you know, you're, you've developed a, a reputation uh, that's clearly linked to your work. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll be on shift, for example, or in the unit, and people will quote stuff that has been discussed on your various podcasts. Um, so how do you ensure quality? How do you make sure that you're putting the, the right stuff out there and people, um, you know, are, are quoting your stuff appropriately for their clinical management? Okay, this is a, this is a rough thing, because, well, there's two questions inherent in there. Quality is easy when you have a reasonable audience because they will tell you immediately if you mess up anything. So anyone who says this is not peer reviewed, they're right. Many cases, I don't pre peer review before release, but near instantaneously, if there's any error or disagreement, I hear about it. It's freely available. They go up as comments on the website. So there's no hiding it. I don't take anything down if they say I'm an idiot because chances are I probably was an idiot. So that is there. It's an immediate post-release peer review. And so that's 
that's how you establish quality. Now, it's much harder when you don't have a real uh, sizable audience yet, because then you don't know. You might say something stupid and not get feedback because only like one in a hundred actually takes the time to, to write to you unless you do something egregious. So that's a problem. And so early show peer review is definitely an issue. Um, in terms of, um, uh, oh my God, I'm, I'm blanking now. I'm getting senior moments. Af, what was the second part of that question? It was equality and then the yeah, I mean, your reputation is kind of linked to this. Where oh, so, oh, no, 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 yeah. no. Now I remember you alluded to the fact that people are quoting yeah. your stuff. And that's a problem because oftentimes the quotes are misquotes when uh, <laughs> people quote it. And, and you're like, I never said that. And I certainly would never have advocated you do that. So it's rough. But it's the same situation of any uh, thing is if they're learners, they really need to be vetting the new thing they want to try with an experienced staff or attending physician so that they could actually have that um, making it work in their environment and, and confirming it's really a good idea in this particular patient situation. Yeah, I think in terms of uh, maintaining quality, I look at it a couple of ways. When you talk with podcasters about quality, so often they get caught up with audio quality. You know, does it sound good? Is there background noise? But I think really when we're talking about quality in terms of medical education podcasts is, is what's the content? How is it being delivered? And, you know, because we've only been around for a year, uh, we certainly have a much smaller following than say MCRIT, which probably has one of the largest followings in terms of the, the MedEd podcast space. But we do still hear a lot of positive comments, thankfully, but we're still always looking for constructive criticism as well as the negative comments, because obviously from episode to episode, we're gonna discuss topics that I'm maybe not an expert in. Uh, and that's where I'll oftentimes bring in guests who are experts in particular areas and are publishing cutting edge research that I think is valuable uh, to our audience and listenership. Fantastic. Uh, so uh, in that vein, I mean, it seems like everybody wants to get into the podcasting game. Do you think there's too many medical podcasts out right now or not enough? I want to hear your answer first, Dennis, and then I'll give my more cynical <laughs> answer. So it's a great question. I mean, yes, like we talked about earlier, you go to iTunes or Apple podcasts and there's a couple million podcasts out there and it seems like every day there's a couple hundred new ones coming out. Um, you know, I think in certain specialties, they certainly seem to be a little bit more saturated in terms of the number and availability of podcasts. And again, I think in the EM space in particular, um, you know, there's so many out there, it's hard to pick which one to listen to. And obviously, you don't have enough time in the day to listen to all of them. Um, in the world of trauma, acute care surgery, uh, we've been fortunate, there's not a lot out there, and there's probably room for more. And so if there are people listening to this particular episode or podcast, and you're, you're in the world of trauma, critical care, and you're thinking about launching a podcast, we are certainly happy to talk with you and share with you at least my experience in terms of getting the show off the ground. So I would say that in general, there's, you know, there's always a niche. And so I think you just got to find out what you're passionate about, what really drives and motivates you, what expertise you have and what you want to share with the world. And it can be as specific or general as you deem uh, necessary, but it's probably better. I think like we talked about, identify your avatar, maybe find a specific area that you want to talk about. Cause I know Scott, you also have an ECMO podcast, which is very specific. 
And you're going to find people that are going to want to tune in and listen to that. Yeah, I'll, I'll mirror most of what Dennis says. Uh, there are a lot of podcasts now, both medical and non-medical. And when I first entered, there weren't in either venue. So uh, you were just competing for other uh, things people could be doing while commuting to work. It was a much easier thing than competing against other insanely good content uh, for ear space. And so now it's a harder world. There still is space for medical podcasts, but uh, what Dennis said is absolutely true. Uh, you need to find a niche. And you know this is everywhere across media production in the new world is you're not looking to hit everyone. You're looking to get you know, 500, 1,000 people that want to hear your stuff and just speak to them. And that will build an audience. And so there's still room for that. But there's this concept called pod fade, which is everyone gets excited and everyone who is smart in academic medicine has five episodes of a podcast in them. So they're gonna put out those five episodes, they're gonna spend all the time getting their audio reasonably good. And then they're gonna realize by episode six or 10, this is not fun anymore. This is a drudgery. And when you get to that point, stop doing it because doing this for any reason, except it really you know, gets you excited. It's not worth it. It's not worth it because it's a lot of work. So uh, I hope that there's now such ease for production that people could get their five episodes out there in a niche topic they really love and maybe just stop there if it's not fun for you. And that would be great. There's all these new podcasts in the non-medical world where it's just like a five episode series and then that's it, it's done. And they're extraordinarily good. And seeing that discrete endpoint makes you even more likely to listen because you know, you're not signing on for you know, yet another one that's gonna knock off one of your existing things you love. And you get your information out there to the world. That segues nicely into my next question because uh, clearly this is a fair amount of work. And you hear about this term, a free open access medical education. Uh, but what's the reality? I mean, is this really free to you in terms of time or money? A good question. And I think getting back to what Scott was just saying, you know, or alluding to is you really got to love it. I think if you love podcasting, you love sharing your perspective and you want to share your message with the world and have a platform to do that, um, I think it's totally worth it. When you talk about sort of financial investments and costs, they're really negligible these days. The technology is so good that you can literally just plug and play without having to get any extraneous software or fancy mics and setups, et cetera. So to get it going, I think from a cost or fiscal standpoint is minimal. It's really the, the day in and week to week and making sure that you're setting time aside to do your background research and to read up and to prepare an outline, uh, organize your guests. That does take up a, a reasonable amount of time, at least in my hands. We're sort of a, you know, we've just got a couple of people that work on the show right now. And so it certainly does detract from, let's say, time I could be at home with the family or on weekends, if I feel like I need to do a little bit more work in preparation for an episode, that might be a couple of hours on the weekends. But as things start to grow, as our, our group starts to grow, and we start to or outsource some of the work that we're doing, whether that's the editing or developing show notes, it certainly comes a, a little bit easier. Scott, what are your thoughts? 
Yeah, you're, you're absolutely, you, you're dead on, right? First of all, you know, in terms of monetary investment, it's less than a hundred bucks and you should own it anyway, because so much of the world is going to be virtual meetings. That's not going away. It's too much fun to not have to come into the hospital for a, a meeting. So you should already own a great mic and that's all you really need. Uh, but the time investment is huge and it's totally worth it if it is uh, enjoyable to you. And if you're in academics, you're going to make it an academic work product. It's going to be something that actually pays the time back. Now, anyone who thinks they're going to make money in podcasting, just forget it. It's A, not worth it. It's the wrong motive. You're not going to be happy. And there are much better ways to make money. But if it, if it you know, sparks something to you and makes you happy, and if you're in academics, you could actually get it to be part of your academic work product, then golden. Keep going. Yeah, I, I got to emphasize that point. This is not a moneymaker and people these days, everyone's got a side hustle. I wouldn't look at it like that. This is honestly like a labor of love, you know, getting behind the mic. I mean, I'll be driving home one day thinking about a topic and already start to plan out what I want to say and what the key take-home points I want like the learners to walk away with so that when they're in a similar clinical situation, they just know what to do or what to kind of think about. So yeah, this is not a moneymaker and this is a long arc form. You know, there are so many different forms of multimedia out there, whether we're talking about YouTube or TikTok and their little 30 second, five minute clips that draw people in and get a lot of downloads and a lot of likes and watches. But this is something that's more of a, a long-term game. You know, to, to put together an episode that ranges from 20 to sometimes upwards of an hour and for people to dedicate their time to have you in their ear while they're at the grocery store or on a run working out or what have you, I mean, that's some dedication. So I really feel like what I love about podcasting is you really do get to develop a relationship with your listeners and it starts to show in terms of how you interact with them and how they interact with you. And like Scott said, man, if you can get a thousand listeners, like a thousand listeners who tune in every week to, to listen and to engage and interact, I mean, that's just absolutely incredible. You know, when you think about going to a major conference, double AST or East, you get a couple thousand people there. And just to give like a 10 minute podium is a huge deal. So just imagine like every week or every other week, having four or five, 10 times that number of people kind of tuning in to hear what you have to say and then engage with you. I mean, it's just, it's remarkable. Yeah, I agree. Totally. It's, uh, and certainly, you know, I, I think that the uh, emphasis on this being something that you're passionate about is really important. I think it kind of flows into other parts of an academic career where, we know who are the really passionate teachers. We all have our favorite lecturer and things. And you can, you can certainly tell listening to different podcasts, who's the enthusiastic educator and who uh, may not be as enthusiastic, uh, shall we say. Um, so, you know, as part of the, the career development committee, you know, all three of us are in academic medicine. Um, and uh, it's a, a real challenge, I think, especially these days, uh, kind of uh, marrying the commitments between um, our clinical work and our need to uh, educate our own learners um, in our own institutions, um, as well as kind of ensure that our academic career is growing. So um, I think, uh, can you tell us about how 
this uh, uh, social media effort from you guys kind of can fit into maybe your uh, institution's academic career or academic promotion? Yeah, Scott, go for it, brother. Sure. So uh, this was my major uh, academic work product, the blog and the podcast to progress first to associate and then to tenured professor. And uh, I was lucky to be in institutions that actually care about this stuff. But when you look at any promotion committee's actual rubrics, if they're going to follow the letter of what they say, then you are in very good shape through this kind of uh, production because they want proven dissemination and proven uptake. And now you can write an amazing clinical trial, but you don't have either of those things really. I mean, you have how many times your article is cited and you could give some other uh, auxiliary stuff, but you don't have it like I do, like Dennis does, where I could show you uh, a map of the world and how many people have listened. I could show you how many people are going to the website. I could show you comments proving that there was uptake of this information that changed clinical practice. So if they're really going to follow their own rules, it should be viable. Now, I don't know if every institution is ready for this yet, but many are. The more people I talk to, the more this is becoming more mainline and it, it really can be a good path. But what I don't want people to do is not like this form of expression, but do it anyway, because they think it's the easy way out. It's a lot easier to do this than it is to publish a clinical trial. So I'm just going to be a blogger and a podcaster because it's not going to work. If you don't have the love and passion, people just won't listen. And so I, you know, I, I see people talking about like, oh, I'm going to do this because it's an easier way to go. And that just makes my heart hurt because you're in it for the wrong reason. You got to do it because you love it. You got to do it because it really, you know, you have a need, a burning necessity to express yourself in this way. And then the academic promotion will come as a side benefit. Yeah, I've got to echo those uh, sentiments and comments. And, you know, being the East career cast, I think, especially for those of us that are considering a career in academia or academics, it really does help very early to start thinking about your brand. So I don't mean brand as in how are you going to market yourself to the world, but do you want to focus in on clinical education? Is that what your passion is? You love teaching. You like interacting with students and residents and being in the trenches with them and teaching pearls. Or are you that person who wants to go more into the research side of things? If the answer is, you know, I really love teaching, you know, during residency, I was recognized with this teaching award, and it really just kind of drives and motivates me, then this is a really great way to build your CV and resume. And I know that at all the UCs, whether it's UC San Diego, where I did my fellowship or here at UCLA, as part of your CV is what are your creative contributions to the medical school and residency program? And by creative contributions, that can be helping to develop a clinical pathway, or it could mean podcast episodes or blogs above and beyond just how many publications do you have and how many times have they been cited or what's your H index. So this is a really a, a great way of building up your resume, gaining experience. And I think every time you, you put out an episode or do the research for a blog, there's just so much to learn. And to be able to share that with others is fantastic. So I do feel like hopefully many universities and academic institutions are really looking at this seriously and considering it when they're thinking about promoting you or for merit advancements. 
That's uh, some great points. And uh, as you mentioned earlier, uh, both of you, that you almost get an automatic immediate peer review of uh, your work, which uh, oftentimes you might not see when you put your stuff in journals uh, or more traditional forms of uh, academics. Um, I think, uh, you know, some, a question some people have asked is, uh, do you put this, uh, do you put your content on your CV then? Is this uh, part of the CV that you, um, you know, when you uh, present that to your promotions committee, uh, do you put all these episodes on the CV? Yeah, you know, uh, having gone through the process twice now, uh, I have some thoughts on this. And if you're in academics, let me save you uh, a world of hurt. Start an educator's portfolio now. Um, even if your institution doesn't require it, start it. And that, I think, is the space where you really go granular on things like podcasts and how many episodes and your download numbers and comments from people that took up the information. Uh, your CV, you just list that I do a podcast, and then it's in that educator's portfolio. And if you start gathering that now with each thing you do, uh, it's going to save you just so much misery when you're at the six or seven year mark in your career and you're applying for associates. So start gathering that now. Do you need to list every episode if you're a regular podcaster? No, I don't think anyone cares. Um, you know, if you want to add that list, your educator's portfolio won't hurt. Everything's, you know, virtual now. You're not printing this stuff out. So it could be a thousand pages. Um, but I wouldn't put every episode on a CV if you're doing, you know, an episode every two weeks. But, you know, if you are a academician and you actually go on someone else's podcast and this is not a regular thing you do and uh, put that there, make a media category on your CV and put every appearance you have as a guest in various places, because that is worthwhile to point out that you're not just a, you know, staid traditional academic, you're actually in the world of being interviewed on podcasts. So if you go on Dennis's show, certainly put that on your CV. Yeah, I love the idea of having an educational or academic portfolio. And I think in addition to what Scott was saying, collect your evals, you know, in real time. So if you're asked to, to teach a cadaver airway course and you know you're going to be evaluated, get those evals and then file them away. You know, a lot of the work that needs to get done, I think, usually comes when you're going from an assistant to an associate professor. So for those of us in the university system or academia, oftentimes you'll undergo what's called a fourth year review where they'll kind of look at what you've done to date and they'll say either favorable, marginal, or unfavorable. And the vast majority of people are going to be in the marginal. And it's just a little bit of a way to kick your butt to do a little bit more over the course of the next one or two years to make sure that you're ready to advance into that associate professor position. The move from associate to full professor, oftentimes it's a matter of years in or time in. So oftentimes, at least at UC, it's that assistant to associate professor jump. So keep track of what you're doing. I agree. I don't think you need to list every episode or every blog post on the CV that's unnecessary, but have it filed away. And it's an interesting thing. We were just talking about uh, metrics. And I think a lot of podcasters, my senses are a little OCD in this regard. Scott probably doesn't do this anymore because he's like 12 years into this. But every time I put out an episode, I'm always on my kind of podcast host site looking at, oh, look, the, the numbers are going up in this country and ooh, they're kind of down here. And oh, this episode didn't do as well as the last episode. So it uh, takes up a little bit of time and it's kind of fun. But I'm hoping to kind of move away from that, just like I'm trying to move away from checking my email so often as well. <laughs> 
Yeah, this uh, actually leads on nicely to my uh, next question. Dennis, you mentioned uh, marketing and, uh, you know, in today's world where there's so much of uh, stuff being put on on the gram and Twitter, um, as an academic clinician, uh, we're not often, uh, you know, in the, in the game of marketing ourselves on these platforms. Is this something that uh, you should be doing if you're involved with uh, medical podcasting or blog writing? Uh, and if so, then how do you do it? Yeah, I think if you speak with most people who are in that world, marketing and business, uh, I don't think you'll find a single one that will say, don't be on social media. And whether it's Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, I think you just got to find which particular platform suits you and your personality as well as your message. So personally, I, I'm a big fan of Twitter. I find that there's a, a lot of uh, academics and like-minded people on there. And so I try to interact and post things to Twitter as much as possible. Um, Instagram is also great. Facebook. Uh, for me personally, I think Twitter has been the way to go. And it's been a great community. Uh, again, you're going to find the trolls and you just kind of ignore them. Or maybe they do have something good to say in, in not the nicest way. And there might be a message to take away. But I do feel like provided that you're using uh, these platforms responsibly, uh, I think they can be a great way to grow your brand as well as to grow your community. And you find friends and colleagues along the way, which is absolutely fantastic. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I think you got to be on them because uh, people are not using technologies like RSS that would get them the notification when you have new stuff. So a lot of people, it's, it's Twitter or nothing. They're not going to know you have a new episode. So it's worthwhile. Um, in terms of marketing, though, you know, just I feel just let it develop organically, you know, post your stuff, talk to people on Twitter, but don't, if you, people have a very savvy nose and eye for people that are self-marketing. So uh, just make your intent. Like I want my community to know I have a new episode. I want to talk to them about something. I want to ask them the question. And then it becomes a very organic process. If you're like, I'm going to pay money for a Facebook ad. So I grow my audience you probably have gone a little bit astray. You know, that's not worth your money. Uh, but the most beautiful organic marketing is still generally old things. Like if you go to a conference and give a kick-ass talk, and then at the end you say, and if you want to hear more, come on to my podcast. All of a sudden you mention at East, there's a thousand, 2000 people. Uh, you're going to get a bunch of new listeners that you, you have actually targeted a very different thing than putting out an ad somewhere or just doing social in order to market yourself. Great. Uh, so on still in that topic, you know, uh, you're uh, you've obviously got your own um, identity with the podcast, but you also have an identity with your institution that you're working with. And so when you're using social media, we're always wary about, uh, you know, our, how are we using that responsibly and carefully? How do you how do you tread that line where, you know, are your comments in line with your institution or, you know, is that is, is that uh, something you need to be particularly wary about when you're when you're uh, marketing yourselves or your content? I think that's a good question, especially when you're starting out and depending on what institution you're at. Um, certainly prior to launching our show, we had discussions with leadership and management to make sure that A, it was okay 
to also B, let them know what the content was about, but C, let them know that what I'm tweeting, what I'm writing or talking about doesn't reflect the institution's perspectives or views so that they're not in any way, shape or form liable for the content. And once we got the green light and we're good to go, again, I think you got to be responsible. You got to be careful of how you present yourself, what you say, how you interact with others. And just realize that what we're putting out there isn't necessarily medical advice and that's on the website and there's a disclaimer there for everyone to see. But I think it is important to at least talk with some folks in leadership, especially if you're at an institution like UCLA or, or Stony Brook, so that they know what to expect or anticipate. I don't know, Scott, how, how you went about it. Yeah, you know, I, I kind of have a cynical eye on this. I've, I've had friends who have had their baby you know, their blog that they've been doing for 10 years uh, threatened to be taken away, you know, when they wanted to yeah. switch institutions. And uh, so I you either have to be partnered with your institution and then it becomes their podcast. And when you leave, you might not keep it. Or I feel you should be fully independent. And I would even go so far that if you are doing this for a while, at least in the United States, you start a business entity so that there's no doubt your institution has, they can't say it's theirs because you work at their institution because it's not yours. It's the, you know, in the United States, entities are people. So it's not yours. It's the businesses. And I did that very early on because I wanted no doubt that MCRIT has not anything to do with the institution I'm at. And I go so far as to not mention my institution. I only work at a fake hospital in MCRIT Janus General because I don't want any doubt. And they're like, well, but you do so much good stuff. We want it to reflect on the institution. I'm like, I hear you and people know where I work, but I am not mentioning it because you want the good stuff. But when I say something was messed up in a patient care, I want it to be understood. That's not talking about my care at Stony Brook. I'm talking about my imaginary hospital. This is obviously an imaginary patient. I want no doubt. Now, do you have to go as far as being as protective as I am? No, but think along those lines. Just have a little bit of your brain that's a little bit more jaded that says, how am I going to get this messed up when I've spent five years of my life developing something that I don't want to be taken away from me? That's such a good point. And it's something that we did as well. As soon as things started to roll and we felt like, yeah, this is really kind of going well. And this is going to be something we're going to be doing long-term and, you know, we're going to start to get sponsors and do other things. We uh, incorporated, we've got an S corp surgery academics and that's where the podcast lives. And so I think that's a really wise advice for those of you that are out there that are thinking about starting up at an institution which may or, or may not be uh, on board uh, with what you're doing. Wow, that's uh, some really great points there. Uh, so, uh, you know, in the next uh, few days, this will be out on the uh, East website. And, uh, you know, maybe my resident or my fellow is going to come up to me and say, hey, I want to try doing this in the future. So, uh, just as we wrap this up, why don't can I get uh, two top tips from both of you for uh, the resident or fellow who's uh, looking to bring this into their career? Scott, what, you want to take that one? Sure. Um, this one you're not going to like, Zaf. Uh, that fellow's not going to like it, but I, I think it's really true, which is do your first three episodes and then throw them away. And you will have learned more in those first three than you ever will learn in any book course, watching other people, because you need to find out how you work, how your workflow actually uh, happens. And then you start again 
And if you're willing to do that, episode number four, which in the people's eyes will be episode number one, will be insanely good. Um, so we'll see how many people follow that advice. And then the next thing is just, um, you know, just release it to your own fellowship or residency and, and get feedback and see, do they like it? Do you like doing it? And, and try it that way before you release it out to the world. And that'll give you a very nice runway to see, uh, is this something that you really enjoy or not? I like those words of wisdom. And one thing I would say too, in terms of top tips, number one is you got to do your homework and be prepared because it's really not as simple as oh, I'm just going to grab a mic and start talking into it. Cause no one's going to listen to that. There really has to be a lot of strategizing. You got to look at what's already out there. Is there a void or a niche or a need that you can fill and something that you can fill with your passion and enthusiasm so that people are going to want to come back and listen. So prepare, prepare, do your homework. And then at some point you got to just start recording. And I know for me, that was the, the biggest obstacle. You know, I had planned this, there was like three or four titles and the title was never right. And so, well, I, I can't record because I don't have the right title and the, the infographic doesn't look quite right. So there's so many excuses not to record, but at some point you got to just kind of jump behind that microphone and start recording. And I love the idea of recording either locally for, you know, other learners in your home program and getting some honest feedback. Your voice will always sound weird to yourself. It's never going to be perfect. And so once you get a, a couple of episodes, I think under your belt, you start to find your comfort level. And then from there, it just takes off. So yeah, if folks are out there and interested in learning how to do this, or you're strongly considering doing a podcast or launching one, feel free to reach out. Happy to chat about this stuff. Zaf, can I give one more tip? Because yeah, please. so many hours in my life. Uh, no one gives a crap about how your website looks. So do not waste a single minute on making your website pixel perfect and it doesn't matter. They're, they're there. They want to listen to the podcast, have a website to put up show notes, but how it looks, people don't care about. Waste none of your life on that. <laughs> Fantastic. Some great tips about uh, podcasting and I think uh, medical education as part of your academic career in general. Uh, so listen, I think that's a great place to wrap up. Uh, Dennis and Scott, uh, Drs. Kim and Weingart, uh, listen, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your very busy lives uh, to speak to our audience today. Uh, so again, folks, this has been a, a career cast brought to you by the Career Development Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Really appreciate you taking the time to listen and uh, take care.